having read all of the books, it's very, very clear he is against colonialism and this white savior trope. Having only seen the first half of the book in movie form, a lot of reviews have said this is not a great film because of the message it sends, but they just got to hold on and, and wait and see the second part and maybe the third part because really it comes to fruition. Herbert's vision that you really need to not trust these messianic figures, these charismatic leaders, because they're going to fuck you over. Any of these leaders are not to be trusted in the long run, which is the central moral to Frank Herbert's universe. Why is the emperor the emperor? I assume he's not elected. What is it just like? Because he has no pants, Ryan. Comics after more than a few delays. I cannot wait to finally talk about the really odd and delightful manga series, Dementia 21. Uh, Ryan? Oh, for fuck's sake, Roman, please tell me you were able to get the books from the library. Oh, sure. No problem, man. I got the books right here. Oh, good. So that's validation for your socialist lending programs. Never doubt the mighty public library system, dear Ryan. But uh, here's the thing. I didn't actually finish reading Dementia 21 yet. Ah, that does go up against our agreement, though, doesn't it, Roman? Where you pick silly alternate takes on pop culture favorites, and I subject you to dark, meandering stories that make you question your life choices. But what if we could do both, Ryan? Can't we, Roman? That sounds too spicy for us to handle. I'm Roman Segel. I'm Ryan Joe. I'm pretty sure I'm the Lisa on Al Gaib. And we are three dudes whose parents went to Arrakis, and all we got were these shitty moisture still suits. My sweat tastes like bone broth. What does yours taste like? (laughs) It tastes like desert power, motherfucker. (laughs) This week, we once again interrupt your regularly scheduled comic booking to dig into Denis Villeneuve's... Seriously, someone tell me. I like how you can pronounce all of the dude names. (laughs) Like Duncan Idaho? Yeah. (laughs) 20,000 years of human history passed and someone's name is fucking Duncan Ida. Anyway. <laughs> Could be Paul. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this week, we once again interrupt your regularly scheduled comic booking to dig into Denis Villeneuve's Dune, the latest silver. <laughs> <laughs> I eat hamburgers, guys. Hamburgers. The latest silver screen adaptation of Frank Herbert's steamy rom-com like its 80s predecessor by comedic hack David Lynch and boy band extraordinaire Sting. This new film spectacle is taking the world by storm. Timothy Chalamet stars as Paul Atreides, a down-on-his-luck dreamy man-prince whose parents, played by the hilarious duo of Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson, decide to pack up the family and move to a multi-moon desert planet so they can enrich themselves with the natural resources of the natives. Manifest destiny, baby. Also, I don't know what you have against David Lynch. I'm sure he's a perfectly nice fella. Yeah, I said he was a great director. <laughs> Join, <laughs> Joined by his wacky companions, Thanos and Aquaman, my man, the gang gets into some crazy adventures with sinking sand crawlers, spooky sandworms, and even a spitting contest with Javier Bardem. Anton Sugar. But you know what? We really do need to bring back 
public spitting. It's really the only way to bring us all pandemic panic people back together in such divided times. But our dear prince is troubled by his witchy grandma, killer mosquitoes, and bad dreams about Zendaya. But after an army of super soldiers attempts a casual genocide on House Atreides, Timmy and his mommy hop in a rad mechanical dragonfly and escape into the desert for a campout. A trippy, trippy campout. <laughs> While his dad gets some dental work done, all to pull a Ryan Joe and, spoiler alert, leave us waiting for part two, which has just been greenlit for 2023. That That is literally the, the worst description of one of the great sci-fi classics of all time. Well, hey, joining us to talk about the latest big screen spectacle that is giving us more reasons to risk life and lung in cinemas is my longtime pal and our friend of the pod, Josh, who clearly does not have the finger on the pulse of our target audience of three people in Northern California. But we'll let it pass. Welcome back to Quarantine Comics, Josh. Uh, hey, gents. Well, uh, thanks for having me uh, here with you again in the year 10191. So guys, once again, I played hooky from not working and headed to a mid-morning IMAX showing of Dune because I had to immerse myself under a ludicrous size screen. And despite my really schlocky intro, I just wow. Uh, but I don't know. What's your overall take, guys? Well, I got to say, as someone who who grew up watching the David Lynch version, almost as much as uh, Star Wars, as well as having consumed like the entirety of the six Frank Herbert books in the series multiple, multiple times, I was seriously, seriously hyped to see this movie. And I uh, got to say, Denis delivered. It wasn't a, a perfect movie, but it was damn close. I really loved it. After watching it the first time, I, I just left with this, I don't know, like this feeling of being awed by what I had just witnessed. It was it was inspired. Ryan, pull the rug out from under us, please. No, I'm not a big Dune fan. I haven't read the books, but I have seen the David Lynch movie, which uh, I acknowledge is not a good movie, but it's also a movie that I really, oh, really enjoy terrible. a lot. It's bad. But yeah, it's, it's one of those movies that's so bad, but you're just like, I want to watch it again. And I, I will admit, I've never seen the David Lynch movie sober, so that might be. <laughs> that might be. Tainting well, my. Well, you're worth noting about the it. David Lynch movie is that every, almost every review I have read invokes it and brings it up because it left such a mark on the culture yeah that's a touchdown yeah there's a certain power to that even if you acknowledge that it wasn't uh a a good movie i can't say whether or not it was a good interpretation of dune because i haven't read the books it was a very memorable movie and there are moments that you can recall very very clearly like roman i know as often as you dream of zendaya you often dream of sting in his in his blue loincloth what i gotta Uh, think for guys named gordon come on (laughs) So what actually really impressed me about this new version, because I've seen the the David Lynch version multiple times, and I never really understood what the hell was going on. This version is actually very clear. It actually immerses you into the mythology of the world and gets you emotionally involved in a way that the David Lynch version doesn't. Everyone's very cold and has this heightened way of speaking that like almost puts you off. And here it's actually, you you really get the sense of the relationship between Paul and his dad, his mom, his guardians. And you also at the same time understand the rules of the world, how it works and all of the different forces at play. And I thought that was a huge task to actually make all of that stuff intelligible. Yeah, and it's there was a lot of exposition, but it was artfully done. How they chose to tell you things, him watching his little hologram videos. Like exposition. It didn't yeah, feel like exactly. Exactly. And I had this like weird experience. It was probably like two thirds of the way through the movie as I'm sitting in the theater immersed in this. I was like, wow, this is going on a while. I'm OK to be here for another two hours if I need to be because <laughs> I was just like living in the world and it was slow. And it was a beautiful double underlined bold 
beautiful. Like it's just such a. I, I, I have to be clear. I don't want to go to Arrakis. <laughs> I genuinely do not. Oh, no, yeah. I, I'll I'll look at the pictures, but I like spending a lot of time there in in the film in the world because also they didn't explain everything, but you knew enough to want to understand more, to want to go look up, wait, why did that happen? Why does that guy have a calculator thing in his eyes? Or <laughs> there were a lot of moments like that, but I was like, I don't need to know this, but I know there's a bigger world just beneath the surface of all of this. Is Dune meant to be fast paced? I'm just curious because like this definitely was very deliberately paced. The David Lynch version was also very deliberately paced. How about the books? The books, it, it, it comes and goes. There are definitely moments that go on for a while. And then there are chapters where it really packs a lot in. Like the last 20 pages of the first book, it's not no spoiler alert or anything here, but you're really, you're 20 pages till the end. You're like, how is this book going to end? Because it's still not clear. And then last five pages, just full throttle. And then you're there and you're like, oh, okay, well, that was a good ending. So I feel like the Denis version the pacing had some problems here and there, but overall, if his primary objective here was to bring in new fans, people mm-hmm. who hadn't read the book, people who would have suffered in the Lynch version of like not knowing what the hell's going on, even though there's like cheesy voiceovers and stuff, by avoiding all of that, by immersing you in the world, he was really successful in, in speaking to a larger audience to attract them and like the same way that you know Peter Jackson did with lord of the rings Uh, time will tell obviously but this movie probably will be the dune for the next generation i and not to nitpick because i genuinely just am still in awe of this movie i've actually been trying to find time to carve out and skip work and just watch it on hbo max during the day and i haven't been able to like commit to it because it it takes a commitment to consume this and by the way i I heard somewhere else that actually even though denis had some issues with hbo max choosing to stream it as well it's actually helping the movie because a lot of people that I've been reading go see it in the theater and then go watch it at home, go oh, yeah. watch it multiple times yeah. and just spend themselves immersing in it because there's a lot of stuff you can miss. But what one of my nitpicks is it almost sometimes felt a little too barren, right? So House of Treaties takes everything they own and move to this planet and you see the giant skyscraper spaceships landing and you see them colonizing the husk of this abandoned city. I just... Are they still back there on House of Treaties or did the whole, was it just the royal family that came? Because it's effectively, they are wiped out. And I didn't get that feeling that a lot of people died, but not a lot of people died in in the assault. It just seemed like a bunch of soldiers. Yeah, that's actually calls out one of my very few gripes about it. In the books, they still have Caladan. It's still part of the Atreides like holdings. I mean, they've got like a skeleton crew there basically defending it. But the city, Arakeen, where they landed in the books, that's actually not the capital city of the planet. They like deliberately chose that city because it was easier to defend. It's mm-hmm. like a like maybe the second largest or third largest city. But in the movie, it felt you didn't see anybody. You saw like the it felt the, small. It felt small. Yeah. It felt you, like in Star Wars, when they go to Mos Eisley in the original version, like you like see it on the there. hill. Yeah. And the, yeah, <laughs> there's like a cantina. That's it. <laughs> and it's just that, a Yeah, that was my gripe is I, I really wanted to see what what's daily life like in the city. They have palm um, trees. You, you see the pilgrims like through the grate, but you don't get a sense of like, what's it like to actually be a non like Fremen native village person who's, who's living there? And there are moments when Duncan Idaho, my man, talks about there's more than 10,000 Fremen here. There may, may be millions. He says it, and I guess you see all the worshippers when the royal family lands, but you don't get the scope for how big the society is. And maybe that will come out in part two. But yeah, it's just like, 
everything was so big and larger than life, but then at the same time, it felt small. And I don't mean in a personal way. It's just like, uh, I, I guess I didn't. I, and at the same time, the, the the danger is you just have massive CGI armies like in Attack of the Clones or uh, the Last Lord of the Rings movie. Do you really well, need actually, that as well? No, I, that actually really is a good point because I didn't. I didn't actually think that the entire Atreides clan had been wiped out i felt like they had lost a battle not so much we're on the brink of losing a war despite the fact that obviously the duke is dead and his son and his wife are on the run but i i think back about the costume design and the sets were stripped down like there were definitely really cool like shots of the spaceships taking off and there was a lot of really great widescreen shots but just comparing it to like the set design of the lynch movie which was really really ornate baroque in a way. And even I was looking at Mobius's designs from the Hodorowsky movie that never got made. And those were actually very, very elaborate. And sometimes when you see how these really elaborate, ornate decorations in the sets or in the costumes, it creates a sense of a culture, of a history that you might not, that might not be explained to you, but you see it in the clothing of the characters or in the sets. And the you know, Arrakis is basically just very, as as you guys mentioned, very, very stripped down. It's basically minimalist. And even where Paul's from, Caladan, even mm. then, it's mostly just like forests and stuff. For all I know, they're camping and shitting in the woods. So you don't really get a sense of the different cultures that these people have. And so in a way, they got so interested in the politics of the world that they forgot to seed it with real people, with an actual culture that feels like it's living and breathing can we talk about the politics a little bit and not the politics of dune but what maybe the politics that dune is trying to comment on because i'm appreciative of the tropes and and josh i'd love to know if this was as overt in the books i got a real dances with wolves white savior vibe that you get mm. but more importantly i america dicking around in the middle east vibes <laughs> like massive yeah. colonial empires who want to go to the desert and rape the people of their one natural resource. <laughs> Absolutely. And having read a lot of the reviews, that's definitely an argument that's being thrown against it. But having read I all... Hang on, I don't think it's against it. It's like on fucking point. And well, no, Herbert the... was talking about this in the 60s. So Yeah, yeah the, uh, having read all of the books, it's, it's very, very clear that he is against colonialism and against this white savior trope. Having only seen the first half of the book in movie form, I don't think it comes out that way. So there, there's a lot of reviews that have said this is not like a great film because of the message it sends, but they just got to hold on and, and wait and see the second part and maybe the third part, because really it comes to fruition in the second and third books that Herbert's vision that you really need to not trust these messianic figures, these charismatic leaders, because they're going to fuck you over. Well, Josh, okay, so... When we were in college, or maybe post-college, you sent me a Frank Herbert quote from Dune, and it's really stuck with me, and I'm going to butcher it, but the sentiment is basically, and I'm assuming this is about some of the characters, and one of the characters said this, but it's that we must put people in power who are uncomfortable with that power, and once they are in power, we must keep them uncomfortable with that power. And I didn't, knowing that that comes out of these books in some paraphrased form, I, I didn't see that commentary come out. I, I did see a little bit of power corrupts, a little bit. But does, is that going to come further out in the story? Is like basically everyone who has power a motherfucker? It's not, not in the first book. Not in the first book. The first book uh -huh. is your hero's journey. 
It's mm-hmm. meant to like get you in there. But then the next book, Dune Messiah, it all falls apart. I don't know how much of a spoiler you want me to put in here, but <laughs> please don't. <laughs> but the worst fears like come true. And yeah, Paul is is not to be trusted in, in the long run. Any of these leaders are not to be trusted in the long run which is the central moral to Frank Herbert's universe. You don't want to live in the Dune world. It's terrible. Is that like a separate book that's not going to be covered in part two of Yeah, it's Dune? a separate book. Well, uh, Denis has said he wants to make Messiah, apparently. Oh, I would love that. So wait, to, to be clear, is the book Dune part one and part two of the Denis movies then? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so part two is going to wrap up with the end of the first book, Dune. Okay. So the hero's then- journey. And Messiah would be a part three then. Yep. And how I mean, honestly, have... I'd be yeah. okay with Children of Dune after that. God Emperor of Dune <laughs> is impossible to film. I, there's about, no what, way what they can make that return movie. Return to the planet of the Dune. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, Heretics of Dune. Maybe Chapter House Dune, which comes after that. But sadly, Frank Herbert died after Chapter House Dune. So there was actually one other book that was supposed to be written to, to finish up the series, but it never got done. So it ends on a cliffhanger. And then Brian Herbert, his son, got all the notes and was like, I'm going to make a, a my own version of it. And it's terrible. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't bother. <laughs> so just because I, I have not read the book. So it starts out as a hero's journey, but then it completely subverts it, which is really actually interesting to me. Most people don't know that. They read Dune and they're like, oh, this is fantastic. And then they get deeper into it. And like, what is this? Because it goes off on a tangent. Like the biggest of all tangents in science fiction, as far as I'm concerned. So all is this right. like one of those things where we have to wait until the third movie for all the really cool shit to to because I, I I so I'm just again going back on my memory of the Lynch movie like a typical hero's journey he he succeeds he's triumphant he is super powerful he is Jesus so he that makes that's it rain kind of, and Toto plays we yeah we call right, him Neo these days Ryan <laughs> so that's total hero's journey very traditional you've seen it all before from Luke Skywalker from Neo and etc cetera, etc cetera, King Arthur. So, like, the the first Dune book is going to be that, like, conventional arc. And then it's going to get weird. Yeah, if he sticks to the book, which I have no reason to believe that he won't do, then, yeah, it's going to be the, the, the typical hero's journey. But it's it's going to be expertly done, I, I, I would hope. The source material is recognized as one of the greats for a reason. It's, it's an incredibly well-done hero's journey. We will be middle-aged by then, though. When that, with the time that, by the time that movie <laughs> comes out, we will be middle-aged. I just want to point that out. It sounds like really exciting. I'm more amped for it because I wouldn't say I'm even a Dune fan. I I enjoy the movie, but the way you're describing it, I am amped for it. But I'm also going to be old by that point. Yeah, totally. Messiah is, it's like Empire Strikes Back. It's a total downer. It will not make you happy, but it puts a lot more complexity into the Paul character. So you should read it. (laughs) It's been on the list and this film coming out and being so well done is a forcing function to do it if I didn't have a fucking weekly podcast (laughs) <laughs> where I had to read body horror manga every two weeks. And there's an HBO series coming out, the Bene Gesserits. That's true. It's like the real housewives of Arrakis. <laughs> <laughs> I, the role of mysticism in the film, like, was there enough or should there have been more? I feel like there should have been more. I don't, I don't know. You guys tell me. You, you said you felt like with, without spelling it out, it made you feel like you knew what was going on but did you guys come out of it feeling like the role of mysticism and its place in society was really clear to you 
not vaguely, but I didn't need it to be made clear to me at that point in time. I know that there's more that's going to be revealed. So part of that is you just trust that the the filmmakers are going to reveal it when they want to. So I wanted to know more, but the fact that I didn't know everything by the end of the first movie didn't go against it. Well, Ryan, I actually want to ask you a question. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole with this because it's about something I just found out about, the Dune universe. So when we, see, when we see all of these science fiction movies, these fantasy movies, and we see humans, maybe some aliens, maybe some magic, maybe some like spaceships and warp speed. Do you feel it's like Star Trek where Star Trek is just like 200 years away from us? Or no, this is another universe. This is a parallel universe. So that's the first question. When you see movies like this, do you assume uh, they are related to us either a long time ago or in the past or the future? What do you mean by that? I'm not quite sure if I'm clear about the the question. So when you see Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or and Mm -hmm. I, I take Star Wars out because they say it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Battlestar Galactica. Do you think that exists in the same universe that that we exist in it's just a hundred years a thousand years in the oh future. okay i see what you're... i don't really think about that question at all i just l- take the universe for what it is whether it's like this universe or a parallel universe it mm-hmm, doesn't mm-hmm. really okay yeah because one thing what i do basically look for is whether there's like a kernel of recognizable human emotion and habits that you can latch on to and seeing that explored within this strange concept and sometimes 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 i just want to see shit blow up so, so, does, so the thing I realized and I learned listening to like another bunch of people talking on a podcast about this movie was the Dune universe takes place 20,000 years in our future. So it's like 10,000 AG. So it's basically like humans on Earth. We get our I don't know if we get our shit together, but there and, and it unpacks. Yeah, if we don't, <laughs> it, it unpacks a lot of things that we did wrong that lead to like the reset of civilization. So knowing. Like there, there is a rejection of computers in this universe, and and there is an embracing of mysticism, right? And and psychedelic drugs. <laughs> so, like knowing that it is an evolution, a long evolution of our society today, or Frank Herbert's society in the '60s when he was writing it. Does that make it any more or less powerful for you? Not really. Like, I don't necessarily need to see this as, yeah, this is the society that we are doomed to become. To become. Doomed to become. <laughs> you know, whether this is like our world or an alternate world, you can find human truth. Game of Thrones obviously is not, obviously some weird alternate version of 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 our of, of our of our world, right? It's not something, it's not, it's not like our past, but you can still see incidents and emotions that reflect on our current times so it's not like yeah that 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 i guess that's why that that question is not something i really ever really wrestle with and it doesn't really impact the way i i view the the movie or the book or whatever it is i'm consuming well i I mean it's like some of the the things that were not fleshed out or really they didn't hit us over the head with them like okay where are the computers well this is a society that doesn't need computers the mentats, the guy, yeah. the the human calculators, all of that stuff. Once I found out, once I, I guess I should say I scratched beneath the surface and found out why, why were these choices made, I, I, I got a real sense of awe for the world building and the choices that were made in the world building. But I guess to your point, like The Expanse works because it's about 300 years in our future. That's close enough. You can see that. You can latch onto that. But light years and civilizations and literally tens of thousands of years away it's just too far it's too remote there's no tether yeah and that's what what it really attracted me to do in the first place is when i found out it was twenty thousand years in the future i never read any sci-fi or heard any sci-fi 
that was that far away. And it really pulled me in because there are those universal truths that still permeates. So it's still humans doing the same stupid shit, just with cooler toys. And then take away computers from that. Uh, that's what really hooked me on the whole series. Yeah. The Fremen are fucking cool, and I want to see more of them. Every time Fremen soldiers jumped out of the sand. Oh, you're going to get them. Oh, you're going to get them. Just every time they jumped out of the sand. I just, (laughs) so fucking cool. Yeah, and I loved the Sardaukar. Because in the books, the Sardaukar are like the... These are the Emperor's evil space marines, right? Yeah, this this is like the the politics of the Imperium. The only reason the Emperor is in power is because he has these Sardaukar. And he can keep all of the different noble houses at bay like if all the noble houses banded together they could probably take the emperor but that that's the real danger that's why they go after the atreides is because they're getting too popular and the emperor doesn't like it and so that's really why they they band together with with the harkonnens why is the emperor the emperor i assume he's not elected what is it just like uh he was born into that and because he has no pants ryan It's a feudal society. Does he show up in the first movie? He should. Yeah, he will. Denny made some interesting choices to eliminate a bunch of characters that are, are pretty heavy in the first half of the book and to, to save them for the, the second movie. The Emperor is one of a handful of characters that I was surprised not to see cast, but I guess we'll see him in the second half. Sting as well. Sting as Sting, well. Sting's character, Fade Routh, he's another badass that should show up in the second half for some knife fights. And uh, let's see who else. But Josh, it was very Game of Thrones season one where... You meet all of these characters, you fall in love with all of these characters, and they just kill them off. Like, oh, yeah. not, Duncan's not coming back. Josh Brolin's not coming back, right? Like, That's what you think, my friend. Os- oh, okay, okay. I, I knew you were going to say something. Like, Oscar Isaac. Like, <laughs> He's not coming back. He's definitely not. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he Ned Starked it. But the, the other frustrating thing was, a lot of comparisons are being made to Lord of the Rings, and Peter Jackson just said, hey, studios, give me your money. I'm just going to sit down and make all three of these in one go. Like, surprising why? it's surprising yeah, it. I, was, I was really i was time. really let down by the lack of choice i was like why didn't you just knock it all out in, in one three month shoot instead of one you know month and a half shoot right. my understanding is it's the curse it's the david lynch curse it's the sci-fi channel curse it's the J- jodorowsky's dune curse it's like no one thought that they this is a sound investment to film dune so my understanding is that's why they only gave him one shot make it work or there's not going to be a second half yeah, his only his big movie was Blade Runner up to that point. He had obviously a lot of other movies, but in terms of like big blockbuster movies, it was Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That was the Which one. Was awesome. So he didn't. Yeah, I love actually. I really loved. I really loved that one. Uh, side note, really quick, but, they released a trailer for a Blade Runner anime that takes place between the two Blade Runner movies. So, ooh, that sounds tasty. Uh, spicy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, just the, uh, echoing Josh's point, he really was not a proven director. He had a track record of really good films, but not really huge films, And except for Blade Runner 2049. I was kind of thinking about it almost like the Christopher Nolan path, right? When Christopher Nolan was first doing, he did, he had like a small crime movie, he had Memento, and then he like laddered up with Batman. And then now everything Chris Nolan does is like, has to be seen on an IMAX. And yeah, green light it. He can do whatever he wants. He holds sway over the studio. Yeah. Which I'm hoping is the same for Denis because he really, he really is an excellent director. Why were people comparing this to, to Lord of the Rings though? Other than that, it was like a beloved fantasy slash sci-fi book, and that's it. It's the yeah. fact that's the source material that Dune is is like okay. it's the best-selling science fiction book ever. Yeah, it's, and king, it's... kingdoms, and feudal society, etc. In terms of like complexity of plot, how esoteric it is, yeah, it, it's right up there with Lord of the Rings as well as popularity. And 
<laughs> this is the problem when we all like something on this podcast. <laughs> we run out of things to talk about. Like I can talk about things I didn't like. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> shit. All right. Paul so O'Brien, shit on this. Let's go. <laughs> there were, I guess, two main things about this movie that took me out of the movie when okay. I saw it. I was like, oh, that, that was a poor choice. The first is that gimp spider. <laughs> With the, Who's the, not, you didn't like I'm the gimp like, spider? Wait, why didn't you like the, the gimp spider? I love the gimp spider. Now, I, there, there's, there's plenty of stuff that wasn't in the books that I was all about, but this gimp spider was too much. Like that apparently, apparently had no place in this universe. You, it was played by Sting. Did you, I'm just kidding. It wasn't. I don't. <laughs> well, it might have been. I don't know. Apparently, Denis has a thing for spiders. They, yeah, they, I heard, they've after the fact, uh, yeah, oh, I, I read that as well. But I, did, I still didn't enemy. buy it. I, the ending of Enemy has a spider. Yeah, in, in in the later books, there's a lot of genetic engineering going on, and there are like these crazy animals. But by the time of Dune, there's nothing like that. Because the gimp spider, the, sorry, <laughs> the handicapped spider shows up in House Harakin, and the main guy of that house is like a snake eel man. So come on. Is wait, it? yeah. So so oh, wait, he's, why just so, he's just so fat that he floats. But what? No, he wait, was like wait, wait. rising up into the sky, and he yeah, was like he is... curled up on the ceiling. All right, all right, guys, come on. You gotta, wait, you gotta wait, what, what was? I, I'm, he's I'm too still fat kind to of... walk, so he's got suspensors that make him float because it's easier to get around. Wait, 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 wait. I want to go back to the gimp spider and why that so impacted you. Because like that was only there for like ha- like like 15 seconds. How come that one... Pulled just... me right out. Because he's a purist. Right he's a purist. He, he knows the source material. And the gimp spider is not Frank Herbert original. Is that... What now, like you... in the Yeah, in the Lynch version, they had like these heart plugs and like the cat that was being milked for the antidote to the poison that he had, which was super weird. But I don't know why I find that less offensive than that gimp spider. Well, the whole Lynch movie was super weird. It's just like you're caught in Lynch's weird head, which is... It's like Dune distilled through Kinda Lynch's expected, nightmare. Yeah. Right, so you're just like, okay, that's that's fine. Yeah, I guess not being exposed to Frank Herbert's Dune, Gimp Spider did not offend me. I just assumed that the entire world of Arrakis is full of Gimp arachnids. Exactly. So, it's called Arachnids. There you go. So, yeah. pick, pick nits again, Josh. What, what was sure. the other thing? The, the other was purely from like a cinematic point of view. I thought the CGI in a couple scenes was just really whack. Like the, the crispy hand scene when Paul's getting the, the Gamjabar test. He's got his hand on the box, feeling the pain. There's a, a sl- split second there where it shows him imagining what his hand looks like. And it was just really fake. Like, like it pulled me right out. I thought the David Lynch version actually did that better because it actually showed the hand, like the flesh crisping off of it, which was really gross. But it was like an actual like real person's hand. This was like very clearly CGI. And it was in the midst of this like really tense scene. Like I thought it was like expertly done. And that hand just was like, that didn't I couldn't stop making the seven joke in that entire scene. <laughs> <laughs> What's in the box? 99% of the CGI was fantastic, but like that, the carryalls that, that come and get the spice harvesters, like that have the inflatable balloons, that looked like Phantom Menace level CGI. <laughs> it just looked really bad. Like go, go back and watch those like reinflate. It's It does not look great. And then in the like the, the final scene where Paul comes out of the knife fight and they, they're walking on the ridge and they see the sand riders. My wife actually laughed when she saw that. She was like worm surfing. And yeah. I was like, ah, that just looks really fake. And it's supposed to be this huge moment. But I I wonder about that because let's let's talk about the worms. It's gonna be a great conversation when you say let's talk <laughs> about the worms. Bring on the worms. There's a queen song about that. But <laughs> <laughs> I liked that the worms were these larger than life things. 
that you didn't see. You saw the sand undulate. You just saw this giant mouth show up and that was it. Like it's this unseen fearful thing. And I thought it was, I'm guessing there will be a bigger part in the second book, but it just seemed they avoided the cheese of the worms for the whole film by keep making them scary and unseen that by the time you see them, no matter how good the CG was going to be, it's going to let you down at the end of that movie. Like maybe you didn't need to see them riding the worms. Well, I mean, eventually you have to see them riding the, riding the worms because that, that's a, a huge part of like. Sure, but, but if you make if you make that. But again, you could have held that off till, until the second till the movie. Yeah. Right. Because to your point, it, it left a weird punctuation mark at the end of the film. They could have shown the worms being ridden uh, if they just done it better. <laughs> <laughs> can, can, can it really look good riding worms? Come on. Uh, I don't know. It didn't look good in David Lynch's version. Uh, It didn't look good in Denny's version either. No, but uh, actually, I want to push back. So, and I I need to go back and look at on HBO Max, but that scene, you can visibly see the person on the worm, but in every scene prior, the worms are just like literally larger than life. They are larger than buildings. They're larger than sand crawlers, et cetera, et cetera. And so like the, the actual sizing, unless they're riding like baby worms. Well, they're, they're, they're just like any animal. They come in various sizes. And so, it's part of, without giving away too much, it's part of like Fremen society. And it's a closely held secret, like like the Chris knife, that the, the Fremen have a relationship to the worms. They don't really tame the worms, but they are able to at least, they figured out a way, like without magic powers too, to control these worms. Hmm. What do the worms eat to get so big? I was wondering about that. Do they just eat sand? Is there some, some oh, sort those of Those little like... mice, those little cute mice. They just keep eating the <laughs> Wadib. Uh... I don't think it's ever explained in any of the books exactly. They do get in pretty deep into the like physiology of the worms, but I don't think they ever really talk about like what they're using as energy in order to grow so big. I just to, just to uh, geek out on this a little bit. bit. <laughs> well, wouldn't the spices just laden in the sand? So is it just like whales and plankton, and like it just supercharges their growth? Because it's it's not quite an energy source; it's a psychoactive substance. Again, I don't want to spoil too much, but there is a connection between the spice and the worms, and it's a pretty important connection. Sort of like gasoline, right? Like gasoline is both like a psychoactive substance. You can huff it and then it also fuels your car. But the... I was going to go down the path of like Star Trek Discovery tardigrades, but yes, yes, yeah. sniffing gasoline. And also, I really I'm liked like... how they did the spice, like, like how he portrayed it, like the little flecks in the air that just sort of glinted and caught the light, like inside the tent and when Paul was like outside yeah. of the harvester. That was really well done. I, I really, really dug that. You really got the feeling of like how important the spice is. And it's actually a thing that's like everywhere. Uh, you didn't get that feeling in, in the David Lynch version. It was just a, a powder that was sitting there. Like all the cocaine of the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> a powder that was just sitting there. <laughs> I think I've just realized that the Sarlacc in Star Wars is just a really lazy sandworm. He's probably just yep. like, I'm just not going to move. I'm just going to sit the, here. Let the Jabba Jedi are the Bene Gesserit. I got, I got to ask, are there? OK, so uh, even though Lucas got to screen first it, and Lucas pulled from a lot of things, right? Kurosawa, World War Two fighter movies, et cetera. Are there has it been documented that Lucas is like, oh, yeah, I totally read Frank Herbert and I, I wanted those five things. He oh, probably yeah. Did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tatooine is Arrakis. Yeah. And then David Lynch was in line to direct. Return of the Jedi, and he decided not to. Of course, did Dune God. instead, which would have been wow. that would have, that would have. I would I would actually like to see David Lynch's Return of the Jedi. Think about the then, alternate universe we would live in, like how society and pop culture would have evolved if 
I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> but he he was he was conscientious of the desert sequences of Return of the Jedi and, and did not want Arrakis to look anything like that. Yeah, the expanse of the desert scenes in the Dene version, you really, really get a sense of how big and dangerous Arrakis is. Like, it makes me want to go to Jordan. Like, I, I, I never really knew much about the country of Jordan, but mm. apparently, like, big parts of it were filmed there, and it just looks mm. amazing. Whereas, in, like, in the Lynch version, it was very clearly a set. Yeah, it's crazy, because when you are in the desert, like uh, Wadi Rum or even the edges of the Sahara, you can literally just, like, once you lose the town you came in from over the horizon, you are lost in the desert. Like you think, and you, you can feel lost. And that's, I mean, the beauty of why they go to Tunisia, why they go to Morocco, why they go to Jordan to do these things. Cause it feels like the sand is endless. It just, it just goes and goes. And it's the most desolate and scary thing to be caught in. And yeah, that's, I, that was part of it. Like I will go watch it on my TV. I will go watch it on my phone now, but I'm glad the first time I saw it, I was surrounded by it because you really do feel kind of transported. And you know, when Tim and his mom are on the run, like you, <laughs> you're like, what the <laughs> fuck? We are, we are in the middle of nowhere. How are you going to get home from this? You're watching on your television and then your phone. You're going on successively smaller screens, Roman. <laughs> yeah, it seems so much more dangerous. Like when when the Atreides fall, when the Harkonnen and the Sardaukar attack and take out House Atreides pretty handily, and Paul and Jessica have to escape and they get kidnapped and then they escape. It seems really, really hopeless. And a lot of that had to do with the size of the world, like built up to that point, as well as the size of the desert that they got well, dropped even, into. Even the reliance on the technology. They get you over the head with it. Like, if they mention the fucking moisture suits one more time. But still suits! Still suits! But it's, it is a society that has advanced to the level that they have because of a mastery of technology. They have mastered nature with technology. And then when you strip it all away, you're fucked. Like, you just got your wits and your training. But even, even the Fremen, to a degree have to leverage the still suits right like it's oh yeah and even they have the little thumpers right to call the worms so there is this reliance on technology it is a civilization to tame nature tame the beast but even one um, a small thing i love I, I don't know if it was in the david lynch version but there's a special way of walking in the desert that makes you look like you're drunk and that's very intentional right but that's amazing yeah, they mention it in the in the movie. It's it's very prevalent in the book. Like it's all over the place in the book. Mm -hmm. It's it's necessary if you're going to travel anywhere and you're crossing like the open the open dunes, you gotta walk without rhythm. I don't think they call it the sand walk in the book, but whatever. But yeah, I, I was happy to see that that was included as like a plot point. But yeah, there are so many like little 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 tiny things like that. Like when Kynes, Doctor Kynes, gets killed by the Sardaukar, and they like stab her. Like the the camera's in front of her, and the sword comes through from from the back. And there's just like a little splash of water that shoots out from her yeah. suit. Like as little details like that, that I just thought were like really masterful. Ryan, you didn't go see this in theaters. Were you able to be immersed in it? Like just on TV? Like for a lot of folks yeah. who would be willing to go into theaters? Yeah. Because I've got an attention span. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I've got a pretty good TV and all that stuff. I was actually intent on seeing it in theaters, but then I, I saw James Bond in theaters, and that was that put me off theaters for for a while. It was just very, very the crush of people, and I forgot what it was like to sit behind like a bunch of preteens in a movie theater. <laughs> that I was just like, I'm not going to go through that shit again. So no, yeah, I was able to get immersed fine. Like that's if the movie's good and this one was good, it's immersive. So 
that was not an issue for me. You know, I mean, I will say I felt for me the movie was strongest actually in the beginning when you have this different interplay of personalities. And then once they're on the run, and maybe this is just a product of knowing more or less going to end and that it's a hero's journey. We've seen that movie before. I got less interested in it. I knew that every challenge that Paul faced he would overcome. And and then there was like a succession of challenges. Escape the desert with mom. Oh shit, there's a sandworm. But hey, I'm going to have a moment with the sandworm. And then this dude challenges me to a knife fight, but I'm going to best him. I do like certain moments where the mom says, oh, he's never killed anyone before. That shows the magnitude of what he is about to do. What he's about to do. Thank you, Roman. I was just about to say that. Um, I just felt like towards the end, it was just like a succession of adventures that you can, the ending of which you could predict versus in the beginning when they're setting up all of these different personalities and everyone's scheming. That's the stuff that really drives me initially, at least. Well, and that was one of the frustrating things for me because they set up all of these chess pieces and Mm. they obliterate so many of these interesting chess pieces. And I'm sure some will be back, but like, And I guess you need to have stakes. That's important. We complain about that a lot in a lot of the other things we read. So there are stakes. You set up this really intricate tapestry and then you just rip it away. That's why I'm more interested, like when Josh was talking about what Dune Messiah is going to do, that takes everything that all of your expectations and turns them on its head. And it feels, the way you described it, Josh, at least, more personality driven, more about the fallacies of this person. And that's always more interesting these days than seeing somebody rise because gosh every time you you watch a marvel movie it's a hero's journey every pixar movie is a hero's journey and and great but you do get a little bit tired of it after a while i i always want a film there have been a few where they never do this but you want everyone to lose and no there's not a sequel this is the end. Like there was actually the movie Happy Feet, actually. <laughs> I don't know if I've said this on this <laughs> podcast. I, My mom, years ago, uh, we were home for Christmas and mom doesn't like seeing action movies. She'll go see a cartoon. So we're like, fine, let's go see Happy Feet. And we go see that. Have, have you guys seen Happy Feet? No. Okay. Is that the one where Robin Williams dies? Too soon. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to spoil Happy Feet for everyone. There's a moment. It's about a penguin in Antarctica who gets lost. And leaves Antarctica because he's trying to save his family. Otherwise, they're going to die. And he leaves Antarctica and he almost drowns at sea. And he wakes up and he finds himself in a zoo. You should have cut to fucking credits right there. Like, I remember, like, in the theater being like, yes, let's end it here. This is it. Is that the plot of Madagascar in reverse? (laughs) Or the forward plot of Madagascar, too. But my point being... It's not just about ending on a down note like Empire Strikes Back because you're going to save the day in Return of the Jedi. But it's like, we gave it our best. We tried. And that just wasn't good enough. I'm sorry. I guess people wouldn't line up to see that movie in theaters, but I sure would. Because that's what the world feels like right now. (laughs) It's a good lesson for the kids, though, really. Kids, sometimes your best is just not good enough. And sometimes you just try as you might. You just wind up in a fucking zoo. Well, what if they, so the ending of Dune that Denis chose, I don't want to say it was arbitrary, but Denis made a choice. It wasn't like the end of a chapter, unless it's the end of the first half of the book and it's like second half, right? Uh, you could have ended it in a much more bleak way. Like there, there is a sense of hope and optimism at the end of this film going in. And, by a sandworm. Not eaten, eaten by a sandworm. Swallowed. Swallowed by a sandworm. No, just but dies the in the desert. 
the desperation of being in the desert and, and not then his knowing mom what's kills going him on. and eats him. Sorry, that's not that's not Dune. Yeah, he's got to he's got to thread the needle. He's got to become a Fremen, but not unleash holy war on the universe. Yeah, I don't know because I feel like Two Towers did that. But again, you and you knew with the end of Two Towers, you knew at the end of Empire Strikes Back that there will be a second part to this. It can't end this way. But at the end of Infinity War, it left you like Infinity War is a great example. It left you saying, holy oh, yeah. fuck, like literally yeah. fade to black. There's no after credit scene here. Sorry, guys. And again, I love the movie, but I felt like the chips were so down. And and I guess maybe we didn't see enough of the Fremen. So that's maybe that's why you needed to have the that last couple of scenes. But I don't know. It could have ended on a downer with this one because it really aligns pretty nicely to the cutoff in the book because Mm -hmm. Dune is broken up to three different smaller books. Mm -hmm. And that's about halfway through the second book called The Prophet Mm -hmm. before it gets into Muad'Dib and the the final chapters, the final half. Mm. Okay. So I think it cuts off pretty nicely, but maybe not exact. Let me go consult the books. (laughs) (laughs) The tomes. Any any last nitpicks of things to mention? Yeah, I have two. Please. Small ones. They're not like damning or anything, but I really could have used more Harkonnens. Like the, like we got to know the Sardaukar pretty well with their throat singing and the bloody incantations and stuff on there. Nothing like a good guttural throat sing. Yes. Which which I loved, but I really felt like the Harkonnens didn't get enough screen time. Like you really didn't get the sense that they're the villains. Well, like that's they're because... the, like the main villain. Well, you did get the Gim Spider, though. That's a Harkonnen. You did on the plus side. That's like a Harkonnen with eight legs. I just felt like there was a need for more face time with like how brutal the Harkonnens really are. That you get the attack scene. How bad was Bar- the Baron in the books? Yeah, I heard he was real fucked oh, up. Real fucked up. Like like pedophile, just sadistic, just like the worst. But also like cunning and brilliant. And also the weight problem. So, <laughs> not that in, in these times. But, big, bone, uh, big boned. <laughs> big boned. So much so that they needed to actually like, give him suspensors to walk around. Um, but even in, in the battle, in the attack on the city on Arrakis where Hasatridis is, the, the soldiers all felt faceless. It's just, okay, they were these this armor, those guys were that armor. I didn't really feel, I knew what the stakes were. But I didn't feel like this blood feud being like let out on screen. Yeah, you saw a little bit more of what it was like to be like working in the Atreides household and like for the Atreides. And it seemed like a nicer gig, but you really didn't see anything other than like the Harkonnens are really bald. (laughs) (laughs) They are really bald. Really bald. Which if you want to talk about tropes, that's one of my least favorite is why the bad guy always got to be bald. Like, come on. (laughs) It's cheap. But yeah, so there was that. And then there was uh, Dr. Yui's story. Like, why he's the traitor. That's a big part of the first half of the book. And it really got skipped over quite a bit. Like, his motivation for betraying the Atreides, what the leverage was that the Harkonnens had over him, and his, like, conditioning. Like, he's supposed to be the Souk Doctor, which is, like, they're known. The entire point of them is that they're unbreakable. When they work for somebody, they can never betray them. They only have their best interest in mind. And that's it. In, oh, in the world building of that. the societal classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got more of the Mentats than I did the Doctors. Because the yeah. do- he had the thing on his head, and I'm guessing that was symbolic of that. And I read about that later, and it's like... Like, they're beyond suspicion. They cannot be broken. But the Harkonnens did it. Like, the, the weight of that was skipped over in the movie. 
I felt like that would have been a really, really, it's powerful, but he had to condense it down for time. So whatever, it might've might been a good choice, but I could have used more of that because I really like that angle. Do you think, I hate director's cut. The director's cut is the film we saw in the movie, but do you think there's cutting room floor stuff that does some of those things that were just left yeah, out? Yeah, I've... I have heard that there is footage that was unused. There was a whole banquet scene when they arrived where they met some of the other like lords and ladies that weren't necessarily from the Harkonnens. That, that and they probably explained and, and they totally explained that the doctor's unbreakable in that scene, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> is that, yeah. And then there also is an aside where Dr. Yui is talking to Jessica and you get a little bit more of a sense of the conflict that, that he has within him that he, he knows he's about to betray the Atreides, but he still has to like keep up the appearance. Hmm. Hmm. Because Dr. Yui is a really interesting character, but he didn't get an interesting character in the movie. I, I hear he actually had a lot more airtime in the David Lynch film. Oh, totally. Yeah. Dean Stockwell from Quantum Leap <laughs> played Dr. Yui. <laughs> and he was fantastic, man. He had some... Say what you will about David Lynch's Dune. I, I love David Lynch's Dune because the cast, with the exception of Kyle MacLachlan, was just like perfect. I mean, Kyle MacLachlan's great, but he's not a 15-year-old boy even in the mid 80s. <laughs> so I have, I have two related questions that I want to ask you guys back to back. Question one, and, and one of these is for me. Should I go back and rewatch the Denis do on HBO Max? Or should I go rewatch the David Lynch Dune, which I haven't seen since high school? Like if I only have time to watch one more showing of Dune, which should it be? I would say go back and do the four hour Alan Smithy version of dune <laughs> the one that david lynch hated so much he took his name off of it he was like i will not be associated with this it's a recutting of dune that's four hours long there's like an animated sequence in the beginning that explains like that twenty thousand of years i have two young children josh <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that it's possible um, there's a four hour cut of the lynch one i didn't even oh, know it's... lynch had four hours of footage it's fantastic wow Who, it's, was this, wait, it's wait, so wait. bad so normally the alan smithy version that would be the version that's released theatrically and the director hates it takes their name off of it dude there was actually a four hour was it a theatrical version of this movie i don't think it was ever released theatrically but it was going to be released on back in the day vhs and Cut it was an attempt to like Who? it was like an attempt to placate David Lynch. Like, okay, you make the movie you want to make, and then halfway through the studio was like, now you got to do this and this. And then he was like, no, nah, take me off of it. So they got like the B squad uh, to come in and <laughs> and be Alan Smithy and and recut it. Wow, wow, it's an interesting watch. It's okay. I I literally only have two and a half hours to give to this. So are you legitimately <laughs> saying I should devote to the the fucked up four hour cut instead hey. of the Denis rewatching Denis on HBO Max? I, I just don't buy this choice, man. I think I think you have more uh, yeah. time than this. I didn't know there was a four-hour cut, so I would actually go with that, but I would say pop an edible <laughs> before you do it. And then have another one on hand for when it wears out halfway through. I, I, I host three podcasts, and I have two children, guys. <laughs> That's all the all more right. reason to do it, honestly. <laughs> uh, so here's my second legit question for you, Ryan. Should Auntie Pinky watch Dune on HBO Max? Oh, I don't know. I'd, I'd recommend it to her if she wants to just like uh, if she wants to just chill. But um, should she pop an edible and watch it? <laughs> yeah, you pop an edible and watch it. She's in California. It's a lot easier for her to get it than for me. I'm in New York City. So in fact, what I'm heading back to California in, in November. So maybe we'll do it together. <laughs> so, Ryan, final question. 
Yeah, what am I? We're gonna, what are we gonna read next week? What we're gonna read it next week because I've introduced it like five freaking times. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it that shit keeps happening, man. Yeah. Okay, we're really gonna read Dementia Twenty One, which is actually just a, speaking of popping an edible. It is like popping an edible <laughs> without actually having to pop an edible. It's a really weird, trippy collection of, I guess, short strips about a sprightly young woman who cares for the elderly, but man. Old people are so fucking weird, and that is what we're going to discuss next week. But will there be spice? I'm sure there's going to be some version of it, yeah. Or so <laughs> there's it's going to be something that's going to create that hallucinogenic effect. <laughs> will there be knife fights? <laughs> will there be knife fights? No, but there is a war between children and the elderly. I'm not joking. That is a plot line. Maybe we'll have Josh back for the four-hour undirector's cut, Dimension 21. Bring it. (laughs) And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong. qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.
So there's no point letting it go to waste 